Blaise Pascal, famous 17th century French mathematician, theologian, philosopher. Pascal said, any religion that does not affirm that God is hidden is not true. And any religion which does not offer the reason for the hiddenness is not instructive. Well, today we begin a book where we will affirm God's hiddenness. We will affirm and attempt to give an account of God's hidden hand throughout this series on the book of Esther. Now, the book of Esther is a book in which God is not mentioned. He doesn't speak. He's not spoken to. No one speaks on his behalf. There are no prayers in the book, though a fast is called. There is no mention of the law or the covenant or the promises or the priesthood or the temple or Jerusalem or the land. One commentator points out what, was obvious, what is obvious to all, which is if you take the word Jews out of the book and substitute any other people, the story works fine. It reads like a secular story. Certainly it reads like it's written from a Gentile perspective. The book is not cited in the New Testament. And no Christian commentary was written on it for 700 years after Christ. It poses a set of unique problems The Christian church, even the ancient Jews, were not quite sure what to do with it. Luther despised the book. Wished that we didn't even have it in the canon. Says it Judaizes too much. Now, if the book were not in the canon, and someone handed it to you, none of us would put it in. Not one of us would put it in the canon. It's not Christian enough. It doesn't have the right Christianese in it. It doesn't have the Christian markers. Now, I'll come back to this throughout this series, Lord willing. But I can tell you this right now. That view does not stem from a large, capacious, expansive view of who the Christian God is. It stems from a shrunk-down view of the realm of the Christian. We'll come back to that. The narrator of the book makes no judgments. None. He interjects no pious commentary on the behavior of the characters. And so the book is full of intentional, by design, moral ambiguity. It leaves you scratching your head, having to ask some questions of yourself. This is part of what the book thinks good storytelling is. Right? The book does not think good storytelling is having a narrator hover over the top of the characters and say, the Lord approved that. That wasn't good. This was bad. That was not good. Right? 
That's juvenile storytelling. This is a much more sophisticated kind of storytelling. On top of that, the noble Jewish actors in the book, Esther, Mordecai, they have remained, again, for unknown and apparently ambiguous reasons, they have remained in Persia long after the Jews were freed by Cyrus and commanded to return back to their homeland. Right? Cyrus conquered the Babylonians in around 536, and the Jews were freed to return from the exile, as the prophets had predicted, and yet these Jews have stayed in Persia, in a state of ambiguity, in a state where they're being assimilated to the empire. In addition, these characters show little, by the way, of outward piety. And they engage in a number of highly questionable practices. They are repressing and hiding their Jewish identity. Mordecai simply will later in the book hand over his adopted daughter, if you will, his cousin, Esther, And Esther will end up sleeping with and marrying a pagan king. So there's this intentional ambiguity built into the book. And yet the book has been beloved by Jews and Christians. Beloved. It's the backstory for the Feast of Purim. Which comes up, I think, in March. Now... It might sound like a book like this might not be very relevant, but I suggest that this book is useful for many, many reasons. I'm only going to name three of them now. First is, the characters in this book, they live in a world of global empire, and the empire controls everything. Right? And to the extent that, that we now live in a globalized, centralized, heavily bureaucratized, seductive pagan world, which, by the way, can often be quite generous and benign. The Persian Empire was known to be generous and benign to the peoples they conquered. Not that they couldn't be ruthless, but they had a certain multicultural generosity about them. Right? To the extent that we live in that kind of world, the book speaks to us. Subjects of these massive national and international forces that we have no control over. That have taken some sort of paternal interest in us. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, this is not a book about a people who are temporarily in exile for a few decades. It's about a people in a more or less permanent state of exile. What we would call even now the diaspora. They are scattered throughout the world and they are settled down in it. They are not going back to the land. Frankly, they probably should have, but they didn't. They're not going back to the land. And there is no reasonable chance of Jewish institutions and Jewish culture doing little more than surviving outside of Palestine in this environment. And so the book is about how one lives, how one conducts oneself in that kind of world, right? Perched tenuously, 
you know, like a fiddler on a roof. You remember the movie Fiddler on a Roof where Tevia says, why do we stay in Anatevka? Because why do we stay in Persia? Because it's our home. And he says, we're, we're like fiddlers on a roof. We're perched between our tradition and our exile here in Russia, where we're subject to the pogroms of the czar. It's that sort of fragility that the Jews have in Persia. And the, the book is about how one strategizes and how one uses one's opportunities and one's resources in that world. A world very much like the world we live in, I think, in some ways. And here's the third thing. They live in a world where God seems hidden and far away. Right, the great uh, Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor has written a lot about how our age has become so secular, and he has this famous concept, right, of plausibility structures. The things that were plausible to believe just a couple decades ago are not plausible anymore. They live in a world where all the plausibility structures, all the things that made it natural or instinctive to believe in Yahweh are gone. And we live in that kind of world. Right? A world dominated by secular empire, by global secularization. It's a kind of soul-numbing world. Right, where you're easily assimilated. It's a world where God seems, or at least can seem, painfully absent. That's the world we're in. It's a world where miracles are few and far between. You know, it's not just that God is working behind the scenes. It's that he appears to be absent. He does not make an appearance in the book. And miracles have seemed to cease. Right? The kind of stuff that saved Daniel in Babylon a couple of generations before this, right? it doesn't even seem to be on offer here. It doesn't even seem to be expected by the Jews here. Right? There are no, there's no Danielic deliverance from the lion's den in the book of Esther. There's no, there's no even expectation of that sort of thing. There's no dramatic miracles like God did at the Exodus. This is a different kind of world. And miracles decline in number. They decline in frequency as the Old Testament progresses. And here we are very near the end of the Old Testament era. So I would suggest we live very much in this world a world dominated by this kind of secular empire, a world where God seems painfully absent, and a world where concrete, visible, demonstrable miracles are very few and far between. That's the world of the book, and that's why the book matters to the contemporary church in the West. So with that, I'm going to make three points, the king, the queen, and the edict. They're on the back inside of your bulletin. So first, the king... The, the, uh, the story occurs during the reign of Xerxes, which is the Greek form of his name. Some Bibles have Ahasuerus. They're the same person. I'm just going to call the person Xerxes. It's shorter. You know I love short words. <laughs> anyway, Xerxes was the Persian emperor from 486 to 465 B.C. And we know a good bit about him. 
And we know it from the famous Greek historian Herodotus. And the Cyrus, the Cyrus who conquered Babylon and let the Jews go back in 537, that Cyrus is Xerxes' grandfather. So that's where we are. And the empire of Xerxes is vast, and it's inescapable. The text says it has 127 provinces from India to Kush, roughly the Sudan. Including, notice who's in this its empire. The Jews who returned from exile, who are sitting in the land of Palestine. They are included in the empire. Virtually the whole known world is under Xerxes' authority. And the notion of this royal, kingly majesty is piled up in the front end of the text as a way of sort of impressing you. Right? Xerxes is in many ways God in this world. His throne is in the citadel of Susa. The, the Persian Empire had four capital cities. Susa is one of them, which is just in off the Persian Gulf, 150 miles up in uh, modern-day Iran, the southwestern part of Iran. That's where Susa is, and, that, and there's been archaeological digs which have excavated Xerxes' palace, excavated the buildings that are talked about in this text. In the third year, the text says, of his reign, so that's 483 B.C., we know from Herodotus that Xerxes is getting ready to go and engage in a campaign of wars with the Greeks, which for him will have a disastrous ending. And so what he's doing in this big banquet he holds in the front end of the chapter is he's trying to impress all of his leaders and all of his nobles and all of his military people with how vast his wealth and power is. Right? As we might say today, in that insipid phrase, he's trying to tell his people they're on the right side of history. That's the reason for this grand display. He gives a banquet, the text says, in the third year of his reign. The Hebrew word for drinking and the Hebrew word for bank- banquet are very closely related. And this banquet is a parody. It's a parody of all the nations streaming into Zion, which is the throne city of Yahweh. All the nobles, all the officials, all the military leaders, the princes from all the provinces are present. And there's a lot of satire in the book. It's subtle, but it's definitely there, and it's recognized by all scholars. Usually the satire is done by, the, by this piling up of names and of titles, by this chronicling of the absurd extravagance of the empire. right? And it's grotesque overreactions to everything. It's complete lack of proportion. So even at the front end of the book, a careful reader realizes, oh, we are now you know, in the presence of an overblown, bloated, egotistical emperor and empire. Pompous, self-important. And he hosts a banquet, and the banquet lasts for 180 days. I mean, how dumb is that? I mean, I, I like my banquets, you know, but how much fun can it be, right? You can actually turn heavenly things into hellish things this way, right, by insisting that they last virtually forever. So the narrative, look, if one banquet is good and two banquets is great, why not 180 banquet days of banqueting? We're in a realm of power without much wisdom, right? 
Xerxes and his rulers think they can shepherd the wind, right? That they can manage and tame the vanity of life. And the purpose of this first 180 day, you know, half a year banquet is the text notices, the text says this, is to show off his vast wealth. His vast wealth, his splendor, his glory, and his majesty. The wealth of the nations is his. And so at the end of this 180 days, he throws another week-long banquet. There's a lot of sevens in the book. But the sevens here are a parody. right? They, they, they're, they meant, they're meant to show you the fullness of his egotistical self-indulgence. right? They're a form of satire. Not only are there a lot of sevens in the book, there are a lot of banquets. There are ten banquets in the book, three in this first chapter alone. And these banquets form sort of like the spine of the story. This banquet, this seven-day banquet at the end of the 180 days, is in an enclosed garden. right? Because the empire is an alternative Eden. Now this banquet, he opens up to the common people. He's had the nobles and the leaders in for 180 days. Then he says, all right, we're going to have a seven-day banquet. All the common people of Susa can come in with the nobles, and we'll have you know, probably all the males, and we'll have another party for the greatest to the least, including, don't forget this, the Jews, because the Jews have a place in this world. There are Jews in the capital of Susa. And then we get this. Again, overblown description of the extravagance. Gold, silver, pillars, couches of gold, mosaic, pavement, costly stones. Outside of the tabernacle and the temple of Solomon, nothing in scripture is ever described this elaborately. Nothing. Again, the point is, this is an alternative tabernacle. An alternative holy of holies to provoke the worship of the god Xerxes. Right, the wine is served in these golden goblets. No two of the goblets are alike. Every goblet's unique. And the wine is abundant, we're told, because of the king's liberality. So here's the message. I'm rich. I'm very rich. I'm powerful. And I'm generous. I'm liberal with the wine for everybody. Of course, the the generosity here is a form of control, like it usually is for big states. And in verse 8, this is Esther chapter 1, verse 8, there's a command. I will come back to this, but commands, law, law is what rules the empire. And excessive laws and decrees, they go hand in hand with social corruption and permissiveness. It's a human instinct to think excessive laws are going to curb corruption. But they almost always create it. When I was researching for this sermon, I tried to Google how many federal laws there are. You can't get it. Nobody knows. You know, there's, there was, in the 80s, there were 50 volumes worth of just... It's not state laws, not local laws, not zoning ordinances, just federal laws. There are 5,000 plus ways you can become a felon at the federal level. This is what centralized power does. It issues decrees. And here, you know what the decree is? Everyone can drink without restriction. 
whatever each man wishes, as if you needed a law for that. Right? At a party with abundant wine, they have a decree. It's a dumb command. Right? Humorous, perhaps. But the commands and decrees in the rest of the book will be lethal. They'll be much more serious than this. This scene, this world, is what the Jews, what Esther and Mordecai will be up against in Persia. And that's why it's here. So the second thing is the queen. Queen Vashti, verse 9, tells us, also has a banquet for the women in the royal palace. Right? The men are at the other drinking party. Right? And on the seventh day of Xerxes' week-long party, at the climactic moment of this six-plus-month-long celebration, the king is drunk. Right, he's in high spirits, the text says, from the liberal flow of wine. And already he's turning himself into a fool. So he issues his second command of the chapter to the seven, of course seven, seven again eunuchs who served him. And to draw out the comedy, the names of all seven eunuchs are given, like we need to know. We're going to list all seven eunuchs. And the eunuchs, of course, serve in the palace because there are no threat. Right? They pose no threat as liaisons between the king and his harem. Right? This is why kings have eunuchs. But again, notice the parody here. You have a godlike, all-powerful king. He's worried about securing his power and his status, which is a monumental form of impotence, which he doesn't seem to notice. And to protect this monumental form of impotence, he surrounds himself with impotent men. Seven impotent men. A potent number of impotence. Maximized impotence to make himself feel potent. And so he commands the eunuchs to bring Vashti wearing her royal crown. The rabbis taught that the command meant she was to wear only her royal crown. That's probably reading too much into the text, but it gets at the spirit of the request. He commands the eunuchs to go bring his queen so she can be gawked at by the people, by the drunken men and the nobles. For she was, we are told, lovely to look at. And shockingly, in this world, she refuses. And the text doesn't tell us why. The narrator never comments. And her motive is not important, though it's a safe guess that she's not going to be used as a prop or a thing or treated as a concubine in some kind of drunken spectacle. Abraham Kuyper, the great uh, 20th century Dutch theologian, said Vashti is one of the noblest women in Scripture. We forget about her because her resistance was futile. And that's one of the things that the empire wants to communicate. Resistance is futile. It accomplishes nothing. It's counterproductive. But there's another piece of irony here. A six-plus month-long 
demonstration of omnipotence leads to the king's humiliation. The king of the world cannot govern his own wife. And so Vashti's refusal makes a farce out of his court and his nobles and his wealth and his power. Right? And like all men who need to reassert control, he becomes furious. He burns with anger, the text says. His impotence makes him impatient. And that combination, impotence and impatience, produces rage. And that brings me to the third point, the decree. So this king, hapless again, notice, doesn't know what to do when his own queen defies him. He has to consult some legal experts on this. Seven again, of course, there's seven of them. Geniuses in the matters of law and justice. Again, notice, the firm hand of the law is everywhere, but the law is ridiculous. Among other things, we're told later that the law of the Medes and Persians cannot be repealed. Which is bad enough when the laws are foolish, but it's disastrous, right, when the laws are evil. So the seven wise men, they're all named in the text again so you can feel the idiocy. Imagine these guys. They're probably embarrassed for the king. They might be smirking to themselves. They're summoned. One commentator calls this scene Xerxes and the Seven Dwarfs. <laughs> They're asked by the king, according to, according to law, what must be done to Queen Vashti? Again, the impotence. He needs to check with his lawyers when his queen defies him. Right? And you know, so what does he start with? According to law. Right? To some people with a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Another opportunity for a new rule to be promulgated. So he, th- you know, he thinks that this is a process and a procedure problem, not a people problem. It's not the queen, my wife, but what law can rectify my offended honor? So he's making the, the personal political, as we say these days. He's making the personal political. A matter that could have been handled in the palace is now turned into a matter of state, a matter of international law. Well, why why does he think this way? Because in his mind, in this world, the whole empire is insulted. The whole empire is insulted by Vashti's disobedience to his, you know, marry with wine command. You know what's interesting to note here about the, the distortion in the world like this? It's not the king's drunken idiocy that's a matter of state. It's his queen's noncompliance with it. So then you get this advisor named Memukan. He speaks for five long verses, longer than anyone else. It's a narrator's way of saying, listen to this guy. Listen to this guy drone on. He's probably the chief justice. It's probably not possible in this sort of shame and honor culture for Mamukan to say to the king, hey, why don't you sleep it off and walk over tomorrow and talk to her? 
He doesn't do that. He just follows the king's lead. And so he elaborates ludicrously that she's done wrong, not not just against the king, but against the nobles and against the peoples of all 127 provinces. Right, to, to the legalist cast of mind, to, to, let's call it the Mamukin mind. Right? To the Mamukin mind, the logic here is impeccable. I think it's important to see this, right? The logic is impeccable. She's a public person. She sinned publicly. Therefore, she's offended every last person in the empire. Right? You cannot talk people like this out of this logic. It's both airtight and idiotic at the same time. Sir, you, you, you've probably all been in conversations with that with someone, right? The logic they're using is airtight, but it's idiotic. Emerson said, a foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds. Right? And this is a collection of little minds here, and it's a foolish kind of consistency. I mean, never mind the fact that even with an active rumor mill, I mean, there's no internet, even with an active rumor mill, 99.9999, you know, virtually nobody in the empire would even know or hear of the offense. Yet Memukan, the decree maker, continues, he says, the queen's conduct will become known by all the women. They will despise their husbands. Right? They'll cite Vashti's example of disobedience even this very day. Apparently in the Sudan, this very day. The noble women will respond to the king's nobles like Vashti, and there'll be no end. There will be no end to the disrespect and the discord. This is what I call a a person who's a camel's nose under the tent kind of person. The camel sticks his nose under the tent, and this person is like, oh, if we allow this to happen, then this is going to happen, and then this is going to happen. This type of person never realizes, you know what often happens when the camel sticks his nose under the tent? He just pulls it back out and goes away. But not to this type of person. A little leaven leavens the whole lump, so we need laws. Right? There's a hyper-reactivity here that is ungodly. It's an agitation, a kind of watching out for what we can regulate. There'll be no end to the disrespect Mamukins. Of course, of course. The women will do this because they can't think for themselves. Right? They're not people with agency. They just mechanically follow bad example, these women, like, like you know, day follows night. Of course, it's also true that bad examples create good behavior, but that's too sophisticated and nuanced for this person. You know, generally, if you want to stop someone from jumping off a cliff, we'll just have some first person jump off. You know, the exact opposite is often the case, right? Somebody does something crazy and stupid and dumb, and it actually prevents people from doing stuff. But that's not how this guy thinks. That's not how he thinks. From Ethiopia, you know, to India, to Greece, all these women are the same. They're just waiting for an excuse for an empire-wide women's rebellion. Of course, it's not mentioned that the men would have to imitate Xerxes for the women to imitate Vashti. That's screened out. The whole speech 
by Mamukin is preposterously unlikely. And it's verbose because the narrator is satirizing it. It's all out of proportion to the act and the threat it holds to others. But this is what happens in the empire. It anticipates Haman's later wanting to kill all the Jews because one Jew will not bow down to him and pay him honor. This is an anticipation of that kind of disproportionate reaction. So that's the preamble. The written decree itself, of course, irrevocable, banishes Vashti. She's no longer called queen. Now she's just Vashti. Banishes her permanently from the presence of the king. Again, there's irony here, right? She doesn't want to come into the presence of the king. So why don't we issue a decree banishing her from the presence of the king? That will teach her. And of course, we don't want people following her bad example. So why not issue a universal decree that makes her bad example known to everybody in the empire? And the decree continues, right? This sort of hyper overreaction continues. It says, uh, the king is to give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. That opens up the crack in the book into which Esther will appear. Basti exits. The door's ready for another queen, preferably someone a little more compliant. Right? And then we're told this. When, the, when this wise and judicious edict is proclaimed throughout all his vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. Sure, sure, I think that'll work, right? Um, The king could not control one woman with a decree. But again, this person thinks, we just need more decrees that are better. So since we can't control one woman with a decree... Why don't me and my genius advisors try to control all women with a decree? Let's create a law to enforce respect. What could go wrong? And at the end of the chapter, there's this scurrying of this whole kingdom of scribes and the the distributed uh, Persian postal system to work on this breathtakingly dumb decree and make sure everybody gets it in their own tongue, in their own language, so that every man, the text says, should be the ruler of his own household, again, ironically, so that every man can do what the king who's issuing this decree could not do. If, you, if, you, if you're aware of the Jewish celebration of Purim, you know that when they read the book, they laugh a lot. Like, if you're not laughing, you're not reading Esther properly. The book is funny, in a dark comedy kind of way, funny. So Xerxes assimilates or he annihilates the, uh, the challenge. He assimilates his subjects. He reasserts his control, right? He, he uh, cements his global power. But if you're an observer, a careful observer of the last 180 plus days, you know now that the emperor and the empire has no clothes. So you see that this regime is both frightening and fragile. Frightening and funny. It deserves satire, subtle satire, and the narrator is satirizing it. It deserves the kind of thing that Orwell did with the Soviets with Animal Farm. But satire is only a start. It isn't a long-term strategy. But it's a good way to start. Now think of Esther and Mordecai. They're watching this spectacle. 
and they learn a valuable lesson. They learn something about political tactics. I believe, by the way, that the book of Esther is largely about political tactics in a fallen world. It's very important to remember that Esther and Mordecai are political figures. They are not private citizens in the book. They are political figures at the center of a political empire. And a good bit of the book is about how to do politics in a complex, ambiguous world. Now they watch and they see Vashti's approach of simple defiance, of principled refusal, and they think, that's not likely to work in this environment. She's just immediately consigned to oblivion. You want to just block and resist? It turns out that Esther with Mordecai are not, they will not merely refuse. They're going to need to direct and control and strategize and scheme. And in fact, in some places, conform and maybe even dissemble. Repress the truth. Much like Christians trying to survive in the Soviet era, it's going to take moral imagination And it's going to take more than simply saying, here I stand, I can do no other. You want grand gestures? Vashti had a grand gesture. Here's what happens with the grand gestures in the empire. You get executed, or you get banished, or you get put in jail. Period. There's not going to be a a fourth figure in the fire to rescue you out of it. There's a time and a place for grand gestures, of course. But the Jews are like fiddlers on a roof here. Vashti's example will mean that resistance, political resistance, is going to have to be creative, subtle, circumspect. It's going to have to diffuse danger. What does the shape of courageous political action look like in this kind of world? I think it's an important question. So, notice this. Already in the book, the hidden hand of God's providence, unnamed, makes an appearance. There's a long string of coincidences in the book. It just so happened that the king was drunk at the climactic moment. He just so happened to issue a foolish decree. Vashti just so happened to refuse. The lawyers just so happened to issue a ridiculous decree. The decree just so happened to call for another queen. Right, so in a world where miracles are far away, where the secular reigns supreme, the hidden hand of God mysteriously in the mundane and the absurd theater of empire is invisibly and invincibly at work. But we don't see it. And they certainly didn't see it. You can always read Providence retrospectively. It's very hard to read it going in this direction. But here's what I want to exhort you with in closing. You are going to have to trust that that hidden hand is invisibly and invincibly at work in your world's silences. Right? In your world's absurdities and conundrums and pain and impotence and mysteries. This is what it means to walk by faith and not by sight. In your world where you're going to be pressured to assimilate and assimilate and assimilate. In your world where God appears to be absent. I think, and we'll see this more as the book unfolds, but we should think of God's providence much like a painting. 
like a painting by a master painter. If you ask the question, is the painter in the painting? A person could say, well, no, he didn't. I see the scene. He didn't paint himself into the scene. The painter's not in the scene. You look for a signature in the corner of the painting. The painter hasn't signed the painting. Right? But to the, to the right kind of eye, the painter is everywhere in every brush stroke. Right? Rembrandt scholars can tell a Rembrandt. They don't need Rembrandt to actually be in the painting. And so part of reading Providence is to see this mystery right here. Sometimes the fact that God is nowhere means he's everywhere. The absence of evidence is not the evidence of absence. Even though it can feel like it. Right? You live in that kind of world where you have to believe that this providence is at work even when you can't see it. Even though there are no miracles and there are no signs. Esther's a book which calls us to believe that the providence of God, which is ineffable and invisible, means that God, the all-wise God, the emperor of heaven and earth, is with us even to the end of the age. And that's enough. That is enough. Amen. Amen.